Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Friday, TGIF. And no matter how you slice it, we've got a real pickle of a program for you today, beginning with sour pickles on Wall Street after a Thursday thud and a sharp move higher for Treasury yields. Fed Chair Jay Powell in a policy pickle as persistently strong economic data complicates his fight against inflation and a pickle barrel full of peak in social media too and Elon Musk's battle with Mark Zuckerberg. Musk now threatening Meta with legal action after the successful rollout of threads. And last but not least, the pickleball pickle. Later in the show, we'll discuss the sports explosive growth here in the United States. Millions of people having a ball, but lots of pickleball pain, too, as injuries skyrocket. Mike Neely, the CEO of USA Pickleball, will join us later. And the ball, in the meantime, well and truly in the U.S. labor markets court today. Brand new numbers showing 209,000 net new jobs added. That's solid, but it is lower than expected. Then comes the complications. We actually lost some jobs due to lower revisions on the numbers from prior months. So you have to deduct around 110,000 jobs. So I'd call it a strong labour market, but it's certainly slowing. Here's the market reaction. In the meantime, US futures turning positive initially, but trading's volatile. were tilted back down to the downside. Europe mixed after a 1% plus sell-off over in Asia too. Plenty on the line there as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen holds talks in Beijing, criticizing China's export controls and its treatment of U.S. firms. China's premier, however, saying he sees a rainbow in U.S.-China ties. Plenty to get to, as always, this hour. But up first, that milestone for the U.S. jobs market in June, 30 consecutive months of jobs growth. This month's numbers, however, the smallest increase in well over two years. Mark Zandi joins us now. He's chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to have you with us. Your take on this. Good report, Julia. I mean, I you know, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, I think it's exactly uh, what the Federal Reserve would be looking for, uh, you know, we, anything over 300,000, which is kind of the monthly job gains we've been getting uh, over, over the past uh, several months, would, would have, I think, uh, been too hot. Anything less than 100K, probably too cold. So, uh, you know, 200,000, 225,000, that's just right down the strike zone. So it feels pretty good to me. And what about the wage growth in this number? Because if there's anything that still remains, I guess, uncomfortable on the surface for the, for the Federal Reserve in this data set, it's that, surely. 
Yeah, it's still on the, on the high side. I, I think year over year average hourly earnings, that's the wage measure in today's uh, report, was 4.4%. Uh, just to give a benchmark, I think the Fed's looking for something closer to three and a half. So, but you know, you have to put it into some context. If you go back a little over a year ago at the peak of the uh, very strong wage growth, we were probably, you know, well over five, closer to five and a half percent. So we're moving in the right direction. And my sense is we will continue to do so, you know, with job growth slowing and the economy more broadly starting to pull back a bit. I think wage growth will continue to moderate. So it's still high. Uh, it's still not happy with that uh, number, but it's uh, moving in the right direction. I think all the trend lines look pretty good. It's interesting when you look at the um, the comparison between those accessing the labour market or coming into the labour market, the supply of labour versus the net jobs added. So those added versus those lost. If one's greater than the other, then you're by definition slowing anyway. Is that what we're seeing, Mark, more broadly in this labour market? Well, interestingly, Julie, I, I think labor demand, that's, you know, that's just the number of net jobs being created in the economy uh, and labor supply. That's the growth in the labor force number of people coming in, you know, looking for work is pretty uh, much equal to each other. You yeah. know, around right now feels like around 200, 250,000 per month. Uh, and uh, that's consistent with the stable unemployment rate. The unemployment rate is low, 3.6%. And that's exactly where it's been since uh, last March. So that suggests that labor demand and labor supply are at this point uh, in balance. And, and again, that, that feels pretty good to me. Yeah, I was about to say, look at that chart. It says it all. Um, what does this mean for the Federal Reserve, Mark? Because there was a gigantic number in a separate payroll, private payroll report yesterday, and everybody was like, whoa, um, is, the, yeah. is the labor market heating up again? What does this mean for the Federal Reserve? We saw a shift in bond markets with greater predictions of the need for another interest rate hike. How do you think uh, in totality the Federal Reserve is now looking at this moment and the expectations from the market, which matter for their, for their behavior? Too? Well, this, this- yeah, this is a good lesson. I mean, we uh, should be patient and wait for the actual economic data, right? Uh, because you know these other reports are up and down and all around. I'm not sure what to make of them, uh, but the you know the 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 data, the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, I think are are consistent with where the Fed wants to see the economy going. Now, my sense is the, they've uh, largely made up their minds that they're going to raise interest rates another quarter percentage point when they meet again in a few weeks. So, I think we can kind of count on that. That's what's in, expected. That's what the stock market expects. That's what the bond market expects. That's embedded in uh, in uh, market prices. So I don't think they're going to rock the boat there. But, you know, these numbers and the trend lines, I feel like to me as saying, you know, the Fed's pretty close to being done here. I, I, I don't think they need to continue to raise rates uh, uh, meaningfully more from where we are today, given what's happening with the job market and broader economic growth. And we're going to get another number on inflation next week. Obviously, that's also a very key consumer price inflation. That, too, is still not exactly where the Fed wants it, but it, too, is moving in the right direction. So, I, you know, if we're not at the end of the rate hikes, probably got one more to go here. Uh, we're, we're pretty darn close, I think. Yeah, it's the difference between whether you can do something further on rates or whether you need to. Um, perhaps one more simply because it's priced and then um, give it a pause. Mark, great to get your insights, as always. Mark Sandy there, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Precise. 
In the meantime, Janet Yellen making some moves in Beijing. The U.S. Treasury Secretary met with Chinese Premier Li Chang earlier, saying the U.S. is seeking healthy competition with the world's second largest economy, but doesn't see this as a winner's take all. In a meeting with American business leaders, though, she also raised concerns about certain Chinese behavior. Listen to this. I've been particularly troubled by punitive actions that have been taken against U.S. firms in recent months. I'm also concerned about new export controls recently announced by China on two critical minerals used in technologies like semiconductors. Mark Stewart joins us now. Mark, some pretty pointed comments comments there. Um, The question is, did she uh, be as pointed and was she as pointed when she met Beijing's officials? What do we think of that? Because I don't see, given the economic um, heels that have been pushed in here, uh, any real change in behavior. Hmm. Well, a couple of things. First of all, if we look at this economic relationship, the trade relationship between the United States and China, it adds up to nearly $700 billion. Both economies have a stake in all of this, so there has to be there has to be a little bit of of gingerly walking uh, in all of this. But she was very pointed when she talked to this business roundtable. I was looking at who was on the invite list. It was representatives from Boeing, Bank of America, Medtronic. I mean, many many others. So it certainly was um, an influential group of uh, of business leaders there. There has been this pattern, and Julia, you are well aware of this. If China is unhappy with something the United States does, well, then they do something back. China has been unhappy with some of the tech restrictions from the United States. So therefore, we have this punitive punishment, as described by the Secretary of Treasury, uh, concerning uh, access to, to minerals. It's interesting. I was listening to a commentator we had on CNN earlier this week, and he was saying that if you look at this relationship between the United States and China, when it comes to diplomacy, very strained right now, when it comes to military, non-existent. But if there is a portal, if there is one area where there can be some common ground, it is on these economic and business issues. So I think that is why we've heard tempered responses from both the Chinese government, including the premier, as well as from Secretary Yellen. I mean, looking at these different readouts today, these meetings have been described as as productive yet casual, but but conciliatory. And the other point I think to make about this trip by, by Janet Yellen is that sure she is here as a secretary of 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 of, of the treasury. She's an accomplished economist, but she also is someone who can help turn the temperature down cool things down and perhaps lead to other discussions on other topics that are also very pressing between the United States and China. Yes, no shortage of those. But Mark, I think you raised a great point, which is there should be the ability to strike some sort of deal over technology. Tougher things have happened with um, competitive nations in the past. This should be possible. Mm -hmm. The question is how. Mark Stewart, thank you for that. And new this morning, Ukraine says it's advanced more than a kilometre around Bakhmut in the past 24 hours as it continues to pressure Russian forces in the area. Ben Weidman has been at the front lines near Bakhmut and joins us now from eastern Ukraine. Ben, this is your intelligence, what you're hearing in terms of their progress. It's tough going, clearly, but this is progress. What more do we know? 
There does seem to be progress. We were with several artillery units around Bakhmut, and they were telling us that, for instance, the level of incoming fire from the Russians has gradually gone down as the Russians have been pushed further and further back. Now, I've been going to Bakhmut or the area around Bakhmut since January on and off, and uh, today the amount of rumbling we heard of artillery in the direction of Bakhmut I have never heard before. The Ukrainian soldiers we spoke to were fairly confident that they are pummeling uh, Russian forces in and around uh, that town and they're focusing essentially on the trenches, the defenses around it. We've heard time and time again from Ukrainian officials that the Russians are dug in deep uh, the Ukrainians have said that as many as 50,000 Russian troops have been sent uh, to that area to defend Bakhmut. Now, also we know that, as you said, the Ukrainians are claiming that they've advanced a kilometer, but the statement doesn't make clear whether the kilometer where it is. Uh, we know that they're pressuring the city from the north and from the south. The strategic goal is to eventually encircle uh, the town to force the Russians either to simply surrender or to leave the area. But it does seem that there is, after weeks of incremental gains, very modest gains, that perhaps the Ukrainians are starting to pick up some momentum. Julia? And in the meantime, President Zelensky not in Ukraine. He's actually in Turkey for talks. Can't help but look at the calendar and notice we're now 10 days away from the end of that crucial Black Sea grain agreement. What hopes of some kind of breakthrough, perhaps in negotiations in these talks, to facilitate a further extension to that? Well, that's going to be one of the things on his agenda, of course, because that agreement, which was worked out uh, between Russia and Ukraine with the uh, mediation of the United Nations and Turkey, expires on July 17th. It's allowed Ukraine to export around 30 million tons of wheat and other foodstuffs. Now, the Russians are saying they're not going to renew the deal because they feel that as a result of sanctions imposed upon Russia by Western nations, uh, they can't export their grain. So they want more equity in the arrangement. So Zelensky is going to be pressing uh, President Rajab Tayyip Erdogan to try to convince the Russians to come to some sort of agreement or arrangement so that the deal is renewed. Also important on the agenda, as Zelensky wants to convince the Turks that they should not object to the membership of Sweden in NATO. Now, the Turks are very unhappy with Sweden because they feel that they have not been very restrictive, so to speak, on Kurdish militants who are living in Sweden and, of course, who are agitating for the creation of a Kurdish state within Turkey. So it's a little complicated, but certainly Zelensky is hoping that both of these issues he can make progress on. However, President Erdogan is not somebody who is easily convinced. Julia? Mm, to say the least. Ben Weidman, thank you for that. And to Belarus now, CNN just visited a site where the country's president says Wagner fighters could be housed should they take up Belarus's offer to move there. It follows Thursday's surprise announcement that the head of Wagner military group, Evgeny Prigozhin, is not in Belarus as previously believed. CNN's Matthew Chance has more. All right, well, you join me here in this 
military base in Belarus, about an hour's drive outside of the capital, Minsk. You can see it's a vast, tent city with all these enormous canvases, which we're told can house about 5,000 people uh, that have been erected in the past few weeks. There were satellite photographs of this place before and after, and we all believed this is the location where Wagner forces, the mercenaries from Russia, would be located if they came to Belarus. That was part of a deal, remember, with the Belarusian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, inviting Wagner uh, and its leader uh, to come into exile in Belarus as a way of diffusing their military uprising in Russia last month. Well, I mean, at the moment, though, these tents are completely empty. I mean, have a look inside at one of these here. Completely empty. There's nobody in in there. Um, it's too dark for us to show you inside, but I can tell you it's just wooden platforms. Nobody in there at the moment, but ultimately it can house as many as 5,000 people. The problem is, is of course, the events of yesterday here with the um, revelations from Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian leader, that actually is that that plan is no longer sort of in operation. It's on hold at the moment. And at the moment, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, the Wagner leader, is not here in Belarus. He's said to be in Russia and not a single Wagner soldier has so far come here. And so we don't know whether there is going to be a transfer of Wagner to Belarus or not at the moment. All we can tell you is that it hasn't happened yet. Back to you. OK, coming up here on First Move, diversifying, not decoupling. Much more on Janet Yellen's mission to Beijing after this. Plus, Pickable phenomenon, how the game with the funny name is taking America by storm. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to First Move. I'm returning to one of our top stories today. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on a mission to ease Washington's fractured relationship with China. Just listen to what she had to say in a meeting with the American Chamber of Commerce in Beijing. The United States does not seek a wholesale separation of our economies. We seek to diversify and not to decouple. 
the decoupling of the world's two largest economies would be destabilizing for the global economy and it would be virtually impossible to undertake. Diversifying, not decoupling, but she did warn that the U.S. will fight back against what she calls China's unfair economic practices. Joining us now for context, Jamie Metzl, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's also the founder of the global social movement OneShared.World and a former member of the WHO Advisory Committee and has been called a COVID whistleblower. That's not all. He's the author of five books, including Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. And his next book, The Great Biohack, is on its way. Jamie, that's a whole list of, wow, of your Julia, credentials. I, I know. Every day. I know. I was going to say, I'm sure our audience can guess where that book's going. Um, let's yeah. start by talking about the, the relationship. What we've seen in the past couple of weeks, two senior American government officials in Beijing in the space of what, two or three weeks. Is that progress? Right. How optimistic are you? Uh, well, it's progress in that the United States and China are, are the two most powerful countries in the world. We're the two largest economies. We have to maintain relations with each other, uh, no matter what, no matter how many tensions there are uh, around the world, because the future of, of everything in many ways depends on, on that connectivity. So it's not that the United States is buying into everything that China is doing. As a matter of fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. But I do think the administration is making clear that we need to keep lines of communication open and they're investing in that message. They're not mutually exclusive, clearly, but we can separate the uh, diplomatic strains, uh, concerns about Taiwan, activity in the South China Sea, Cuba, which is clearly um, complicated in of itself, but then the trade relationship and the importance of technology exports and, and limitations there. Surely we can agree some kind of basis for um, operating in the technology sphere. Why hasn't that been achieved? Is there just a lack of trust? Can we not separate these two, given the importance to, to your point, the global economy and both nations' economies? I think what we're, what, we're, we're, what we're seeing is that everything is connected. The technology isn't in its own thing. Technology is connected to geopolitics. So in the early days of US-China engagement, there was a philosophy in the United States and the business community that more engagement is better. And then there's a perception here in the United States across the political spectrum uh, that China essentially has weaponized the open trade relationship and that, for example, uh, advanced U.S. computer chips were being used in military technologies that were being, <clears throat> excuse me, increasingly targeted against us. And so uh, the old idea was, well, we can just think of trade as its own thing, as technology as its own thing, even as science as its own thing. And now we're realizing that everything is interconnected and we can't shut down all of our engagements uh, and interactions with China. So we need to, I think the right word is what Janet Yellen was, is, was using in Beijing. We need to de-risk. We can't decouple our economies, our societies are, are interconnected in many ways intertwined, um, but we can't just blindly stumble into a more dangerous future. Does that mean more trade barriers though, not less? I think the, the consensus across the United States is that there must be more trade barriers, that China is different. Trading with China is different than trading with Japan or Korea. I think there's a, a unified perception in the United States uh, that China is seeking in many ways 
to recast the entire world international order, uh, trying to undermine all sorts of things um, and trying to, in many ways, undermine uh, America's competitiveness. And so the administration is, is, I believe, correctly waking up to that threat and saying we need to rethink our entire relationship with China across the board. But in that, as, as Janet Yellen was saying, um, we have an enormous amount of trade and we have that is mutually beneficial. So we need to keep pushing forward where we can. But there's a level of mindfulness in the United States and a level of concern that is higher than in many, many decades. Can I ask about technologies like artificial intelligence? Because there seems to be an enormous amount of interest in this and it's moving um, the use but also the development of this incredibly quickly. Do you see this as a potential future battleground? One of the arguments was made for not having some kind of innovation pause was that competitors like China won't and they'll continue to develop and innovate. Yeah, well, certainly I was against that six-month moratorium for exactly that reason. We couldn't shut down competitiveness on AI here in the United States, let alone around the world, let alone in, in China. But another way of thinking of AI isn't just AI in and of itself, um, but as AI is something that's empowering every other field. So AI is going into weapons. It's going into really everything else. And so the, the battle for AI is in supremacy is in some ways a battle for the future. And in the United States, there's a recognition that just as Europe recognized that it was dangerously over-reliant on Russian energy, and when they had their conflict, that the United States and the West more generally is over-reliant on China as the, the strategic and geopolitical relations worsen. And so AI and so many other things get woven into that story. Yeah, what caught my attention with the, what I call the AI Armageddon letter, mm-hmm. um, and there's players in the industry that have warned, there's players in the industry that are saying it's ridiculous and people are, are freaking out for no reason. You actually signed that letter. And, and yes. I would like to, for you to help us understand why you did that. And in terms of the sort of strategic competition that we're talking about, whether you think nations like the United States and China can ever work together. I think Brad Smith calls it some kind of digital Geneva Convention. Is that necessary, never mind within nations, between nations, if you're that alarmed? So let me uh, take your your two questions in, in reverse order. One, the United States and China, as I said, we must find ways of working together. We must find ways of collaborating, even though I think on both sides, there's a lot of distrust. AI has the potential to super empower all kinds of wonderful things that we want to make our economies more efficient, to make our health and healthcare better, to improve agriculture, to help sustainable growth and, and protect the environment. All these great things. AI is in many ways a tool, but like every other tool, if we're not careful, it could be abused. So I, I certainly don't think that an AI Armageddon is just around the corner, um, but I do think that having some anxiety about a possible scenario of future dangers will spur us to take more action on the national and international levels. And as we do, we're going to recognize, I hope at least, that if we just have a race to the bottom and everybody is creating autonomous killer robots because they think they have to, um, we're all going to be in trouble. So just like we did with the Soviet Union in the worst moments of the Cold War, uh, the United States and the West need to find ways of trying to find common ground with with China and with, frankly, everybody else 
uh, because, and you mentioned one shared world, we're all inhabitants with all the other life of this same planet. And if we compete ourselves into oblivion, no one wins. It's a sort of devastating comparison, but I like it. The idea that deals can be done at the worst points in relationships, the Soviet Union, the United States over nuclear arms. Um, The comparison today with things like this technology is, um, I think, a very apt one. Jamie, great to have you with us. Thank you. Jamie Metzel there, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council. So thank you. Coming up here on First Move, what a tangled thread they weave. Why the gavel could soon come down in the Twitter meta grudge match, courting trouble in the social media wars. Next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running on the last day of the trading week and a frantic Friday on Wall Street as investors react to a softer read on U.S. jobs growth. As we discussed, the U.S. economy adding 209,000 jobs last month, weaker than expected and sizable downward revisions coming in, too. For the past two months, more than 100,000 fewer jobs than first reported. But as we mentioned, the big picture is the U.S. jobs market remains solid, but it is slowing. And that's perhaps good news for Fed officials looking to further tame inflation. Fresh test next week when we get the fresh U.S. consumer inflation data, too. In the meantime, shares of Alibaba rallying on news that Beijing has closed the book on its multi-year regulatory battle with the company's fintech affiliate Ant. Ant agreeing to pay almost $1 billion equivalent to settle a number of charges filed. It's one of the largest ever fines for an internet company in China. And today's news could perhaps pave the way for a much-delayed Ant Group IPO. Now, turning now to our Threads heads and a strong head start for the new Meta Threads app with over 30 million users signing up so far. But now the message from competitor Musk is cease and desist. Elon Musk threatening legal action, saying Meta is using Twitter trade secrets and poached former Twitter staff. Meta denying it stealing staff, saying, quote, No one on the Threads engineering team is a former Twitter employee. That's just not a thing. Claire Duffy joins us now. Claire, arguably they could have been, though, given the amount of people that Twitter fired um, in the past year or since Elon Musk made the purchase. What do we make of this? Because you were saying to me earlier this week they're quite similar. And in Elon Musk's eyes, he's saying too similar. It's true. I mean, it's not clear to me that this letter is anything more than a threat, that this is actually going to amount to a lawsuit. It's pretty light on details. As you say, Elon Musk was the one who laid off thousands of Twitter employees late last year. Twitter's layout, its look, its feel is also not exactly a secret to anyone. And so it's not clear to me that this is actually going to amount to a lawsuit. What this letter is, is essentially asking Meta to retain any documents that could be relevant if Twitter decides to sue. What I do think this is, is a sign that Elon Musk and Twitter are really rattled by this. 30 million user signups on threads yesterday is a just stunning number. And, you know, you have Musk saying competition is fine. Cheating is not in a tweet yesterday. It seems like he is really rattled by this. Uh, this dwarfs the signups to the launch of an app, I think, that we've ever seen. It's, it's a monumental start. There's all sorts of questions over whether people will stay, whether they'll use it, what the content looks like. But just for the first few days, um, Mark Zuckerberg must be sitting pretty, I think, and um, smiling confidently or quietly, at least, while, as you say, Elon Musk um, flaps. 
Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, yesterday in the middle of the day, Mark Zuckerberg posted a picture of himself laying on the floor next to his baby celebrating the success of this launch. And so I think that this is a huge opportunity for Meta. What I think part of the deal is here is that you have lots of people who are on Instagram, who are not on Twitter, who maybe at some point would have signed up for Twitter. Now they're not going to. They're just going to go on to threads. It's so much easier to get started there, to port over your Instagram following list. And so I think that's part of the concern is not just people leaving Twitter, users leaving Twitter, but all of the new users they could have potentially had who are now potentially more likely to just join threads because it's so much easier. That's a critical question, I think, because in this letter, and it it sort of jumped out to me, it's warning Meta that they're prohibited from crawling or scraping any of Twitter's followers or or followers' data. It immediately made me wonder whether the changes that we've seen in Twitter in the last few days with them restricting access to the number of tweets, perhaps, and warning about scraping had something to do with this um, ahead of time. The other thing was that Twitter's lawyer actually released the... Um, email address of Mark Zuckerberg as well. So one can only imagine what that's done in the last 24 hours. Oh, man. Yeah, no kidding. That was that was quite the move. But um, but no, I do think it's sort of interesting that Musk brought up this very controversial move that he made last weekend to limit the number of tweets that people can view on the platform, which he said was related to third-party sites scraping too much Twitter data. He had sort of implied it was AI companies who were scraping Twitter data to train their large language models for AI purposes. And so, you know, this is, is, it, is this just sort of an excuse for him to explain away that policy while also threatening Mark Zuckerberg at the same time. I think that's possible. But again, this letter is really sort of light on details. It's not clear exactly. They've they've thrown a lot of things out here, but it's not clear exactly how a lawsuit would sort of materialize from this. Yeah. I mean, remember this all began with the cage fight nonsense. I think we're still headed in that direction, perhaps, Claire. Um, Yes, (laughs) even more so now, perhaps. (laughs) Claire Duffy, thank you so much for that. And actually, that's the perfect segue to our next story, talking about training AI models. For the past couple of days, we've been searching for some balance, let's call it that, in the debate around the use of artificial intelligence and data. Helping present the brighter side, the AI for Good Summit taking place in Geneva. And I had the opportunity to speak to keynote speaker and Amazon's chief technology officer to get his take. Artificial intelligence, as we call it, is a field of computer science that has existed for probably 50 years already. You know, things like natural language processing, text-to-speech, speech-to-text, translation, summarization, all these kind of things. Um, You know, uh, uh, video and then analytics, image analytics, forecasting, all these kind of areas of artificial intelligence are quite mature. Now, the the recent launch of some of the newer AI technologies, uh, like generative AI, is things that we don't know exactly what role that is going to play in the future, uh, but will definitely play a role in that. But what I talk mostly about today is what all a large number of companies in and around the world have already been doing in using the current state of AI for good, and whether that is helping, for example, with thinking about sort of how do we make sure that we can feed a growing population across the world where, you know, protein is lacking and where it's hard to actually grow rice for so many people. And AI, you know, natural language processing, computer vision, things like that play a crucial role in that for those companies. 
Yeah, I had uh, on my show earlier today um, the head of innovation at the World Food Programme, and they're doing an astonishing amount of things to improve access, nutrition, um, all sorts of things, which I think we don't we don't talk about enough when we talk about artificial intelligence, at least for now. You also discussed um, the importance of access to data, and actually, without yeah smart, accurate, efficiently labelled, for example, data, the tools that we have for artificial intelligence in many ways are worthless. This is a, a key fundamental part of the future uses of artificial intelligence. It's also key to democratise access, I think, to that data to ensure that, that everybody benefits from this, not just a few. Absolutely. And definitely when we're talking about using technology for good, you know, not just AI, but technology for good, data plays a crucial role in that. I mean, all the AI tools that we have developed over the past, let's say, in reality, 25 years um, are, are useless if we do not have the data to operate them. And now, if you look in the past, data, what was called, was structured. That means on forehand, we already knew what kind of questions we wanted to ask, and then we started to collect that kind of data. Cloud computing, for example, has helped to make storage costs drive down tremendously, and as such, organizations can basically store all the data that they want at very low cost. He also said don't get distracted by the AI Armageddon stuff too. Okay, still to come, it's the fastest growing sport in America, but some picklers, as they're called, are finding themselves in a real pickle after playing. We'll explain what it is and why next. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Now, have you ever heard of pickleball? Well, if you haven't, you probably should. It's apparently the fastest growing sport now in America, with some industry estimates suggesting over 36 million people played last year. Okay, so that gives you a sense. It's a hybrid of tennis, badminton and ping pong. The game has actually been around since the mid-1960s, but it's exploded in recent years with millions of people picking up the paddle following the pandemic. Pickleball's growth has meant a need for more places to play and former department stores and abandoned strip malls have quickly become venues for organisations to set up new courts. The spike in games popularity might be coming, though, at a slight cost for some. UBS estimates pickleball injuries could be responsible for up to half a billion dollars in medical bills this year. Wowzers! Joining us now is Mike Neely. He's the CEO of USA Pickleball. Mike, fantastic to have you on the show. For those, yeah, and I confess, 
I may be one of them. I've not yet tried it. Explain what pickleball is and what the attraction is to the Americans that are now playing it. Oh, Mike, can you hear me? Oh, I may have lost him. I'm sorry, Julia, if you're seeing me, but I don't have any audio on my end. Oh, just went dear. Away. Guys, can we, um, can we see if we can, um, should we? Yeah, okay, Mike, bear with us. We're gonna try and fix this. He can't hear me, but of course you can. We're gonna try and fix this, fix that and come back to him. For now, I'm gonna move on and keep my fingers crossed. The planet, as we've already discussed this week, has been hotter than, well, perhaps at any other time in the past 100,000 years. The Earth's average daily temperature reached yet another record high on Thursday, climbing further above 17 Celsius, according to initial data. Remember, huge parts of the world are in winter too. That's the fourth straight day of record temperatures. Scientists say those rising temperatures are driving more people to the beach just as shark populations are recovering and possibly swimming closer to shore to feed. Officials are ramping up shark patrols off a beach in Long Island after a spike in incidents of people being bitten in the water. CNN's Polis and Oval has this report. We have more surveillance, more lifeguards out there than we've ever had in the past. Five suspected shark attacks within 24 hours, leading officials to ramp up shark patrols along New York's coast. It's their territory and we're invading their territory. The incidents happened at five different locations on Long Island beaches. On July 3rd, officials say a 15-year-old girl was bitten while swimming at Robert Moses State Park. And a 15-year-old boy says he was bit at Kismet Beach. My first reaction to when the shark grabbed my foot was to immediately get out the water get help. Then on July 4th, three more incidents, this time all involving adults at three separate locations. All five swimmers had non-life-threatening injuries. CNN obtained this drone footage from Robert Moses State Park Beach on July 4th of what was initially described as sand sharks. Deciding to late the beach's opening, but state park officials now say the animals were likely been other species of fish, according to the New York Times. What we're hearing from the shark experts is that these bites are undoubtedly a mistake. They think, the sharks think they're feeding on bait fish or bunker fish, and that's why these are bites. That's why park officials say having an eye in the sky is a critical asset. The drones, much more inexpensive to fly. They could be deployed very rapidly. We are entering the natural habitat of these animals and there's always the potential for risk, but with all the assets and manpower that we have employed here, the idea is to keep people as safe as possible. And it's not just the Northeast that's on heightened alert. This was the scene Monday in Pensacola Beach, Florida, where a shark was spotted swimming near the shore. And while it may seem like we're seeing more shark encounters, experts say that isn't necessarily the case. A lot more uh, documentation occurs because everybody's got a cell phone, so we see more of these things, so they, they come into our living rooms really quickly. Yikes, is all I can say to that. Um, okay, we'll be back up to this. Fingers crossed with the CEO of Pickleball USA. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And I think when you're talking about a subject called pickleball, that it's only appropriate that you get into a pickle with your technology. Fingers crossed, though, 
we've uh, managed to sort that out. And Mike Neely, the CEO of USA Pickleball, should be back with us. Mike, can you hear me? I have you. And yes, Yay. we got ourselves into a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did, but don't worry. We're going to get into more pickles here. Um, explain for my audience who may not know anything about pickleball, in a nutshell, what is it and why has it captured the imagination of so many Americans? Well, I think it's, it's been described as a, a badminton, ping pong, tennis all coming together. But, you know, why is it popular? I'll tell you one thing. If you just play the game, you'll, you'll understand why. But it really, there's such an early and easy learning curve. And, and it's one of these games that, uh, in, in from experience, you can play against, you, you can play with your grandmother and your children, and it's kind of an equalizer game. Of course, there's, there's the elite players and, you know, there's those levels of, of, of uh success but you really can play this game easily and with anybody and it's just a lot of fun is, is really the bottom answer it economizes on space too if you compare it to a traditional tennis court we're just showing um, our audience pictures here as well how many people are playing because i've seen estimates somewhere between nine million people and as i said earlier on the show i think something like 36 million people a tenth of the country what's the truth <laughs> yeah yeah, we're trying to get our arms around that for, for sure. Nine to 10 million, you know, which is okay. a, a big number in itself. But yeah, estimates are as high as 30 in the mid 30s and, uh, and, and are at least into the 20 million range by the end of this year. And, and that's uh, that's a lot of people playing or at least have played. So but we're, we're uh, you know, we focus on with our organization doing what we can to make sure that this game is growing and growing safely. And it's, it's a big part of uh, what our job is. I mean, there's monumental growth that we've already seen over the last yeah. few years. Do you expect that kind of growth to be sustained? Because off the back of it, we're seeing courts being opened up. I, I mentioned that in the introduction. There's restaurants tied to it. There's infrastructure being built around this game. Sure. There, there's no sign of it slowing down by any means. And I think the only thing that's slowing down right now is the access to play. And that's one of the things that we're trying to help people uh, uh, with their activities and growing and, and building uh, places. As, as I think you mentioned earlier, uh, there's big box stores and malls that are that have closed down or maybe are being repurposed and they're putting pickleball courts in there. So the demand is uh, is outstripping supply for sure. But we're working on the demand. What does it cost to play? Clearly, it differs around the country depending on what you're doing, but it's cost ease of cost because i've looked at even tennis lessons here and they're pretty expensive clearly i'm in a city but what's the cost of playing this to on average around the country yeah certainly a very low cost i mean you you have the equipment which it ranges but you know it's very economical on the equipment side but you can buy a, a net and, and play in your backyard or in, on the street if you want to but really you know public courts and public places to play very low cost of entry and low cost of playing can we talk about the injury costs? I shouldn't laugh about this um, because they do look quite um, quite significant. And the majority of the injuries are happening in the over 60s. Some exuberant big kids playing this as well. Look, we've got the, the list of where people are getting injured. Um, is there advice for perhaps exuberant players how not to get injured or to perhaps limber up ahead of time? Well, certainly. I mean, common sense always comes into play. And, you know, this game is played from the young and to the old, which is a great part about the game. But, yeah, we need to know our own limits and, and talk to your medical professionals, of course, just like with anything. But I, I, I kind of smile and I, I'm aware of the, the numbers that are talking about as far as the cost and the ERs and things like that. I certainly would like to see that study on the other side of that ledger yes. and how much saved. And, you know, I don't think we ever want to shame somebody for exercising and 
And I think the numbers, uh, uh, there, there's more people that are getting injured on exercise equipment and bicycling uh, than pickleball, for example. So I, I, let's, let's not, let's not uh, badmouth any exercising. For the best part, you know, people are getting out there doing something. That's good. But, you know, be, be smart. Talk to your medical professionals and uh, know your limits. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And forgive me, I don't have the stats on that and comparative sports or injuries or, or what takes place in gyms or elsewhere, quite frankly. Um, how do you ensure that this sport continues to grow? Well, I, I tell you, I think regardless, it's going to grow because the more people that are exposed to it, the more people that are glatching onto it and playing it. So uh, it, it's we need to make sure that the supply of courts and places to play are there. Uh, it's starting to be played in in the United States in the in the school systems and uh, uh-huh. collegiate clubs and levels. So it, it, it's continuing to grow, like we mentioned. That uh, there's no sign of it slowing down. Um, you know, like like any sport, you know, more and more. But I think I think we're at, at maybe a two or three percent uh, of the population in the United States playing it right now. So there's certainly a lot of more room to grow. And I believe the sport's here to stay for the long haul because it's just such a fun sport to play. I wondered whether you're going to say you're establishing some kind of league. Potentially. Well, we, we not, well, there's so many leagues that are out there and that's things that are popping up all the time. And, and there's, there's obviously professional leagues, uh, you know, at, at the one end, but there's more clubs and leagues being uh, started up all over the communities uh, across the United States. So that's the beauty of it. It's, it's not a, a difficult thing to create and start. And I mean, a league can be a, a small group of people getting together and just having fun. And that's mm-hmm. a part of this game. It's just, it's a big social outlet going out and having fun together, getting a family together. I can speak from experience. I've probably spent more time with my 18-year-old son playing this game than I would otherwise. So it's, it's, it's a good, good all-around uh, sport and there's a lot of reason to be playing it. Yeah, I love that. The, I, the number of people I've spoken to that say it's a family thing as well and the whole family gets involved, um, which is one of the things why I believe actually it's become so popular. What about international expansion, Mike? Do you think this um, might catch on in other nations around the world? Oh, I believe for sure. And it is starting to catch on there. There's uh, international groups that are starting up and uh, the game is being played. So, um, yeah, if you haven't heard of it, you're going to hear about it. Uh, Hopefully people will get exposed and will play it and it's going to catch on. So uh, ready or not, it's it's, it's coming across the uh, the globe. It's coming for you. Oh, my goodness. You sold it to me. I have to try now. Everyone Please has do. to stay, stay away from me, though, in case I cause other injuries. <laughs> Never mind to myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mike, great to have yeah. you with us. Thank you. Mike Neely, CEO of USA Football. Thank you, sir. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 